some people view, oh, you know, the linear trend is this big bad thing, gradients and dark backgrounds. You know, and there's so many people who push back on it and I get it. You know, we have all of us as designers have the curse of knowledge because we're seeing this every day but the majority of the world's not. And so the thing is being cynical will prevent us from being able to synthesize the real free learning that's happening right in front of us. We'll say, ah, I'm not even gonna explore that. I wanna be new and novel. I'm gonna go over here and create the new thing. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you have a good time with that. Welcome to Dive Club. My name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today, I'm talking with Tommy Gioco, who's one of the most inspiring designers and entrepreneurs that I've met in the past year. He's launched countless projects, sold a startup of his own, and he's built an audience of almost a million designers online. But what I'm really excited about is his recent acquisition of the brand UX Tools. So in this conversation, we talk about Tommy's approach to learning, ways that you can sell yourself as a designer, and specific strategies that you can use to bring more of your ideas to life. But first, I wanted to hear from Tommy how he got into design, because it is a fascinating story. I think it was like 2010, and I was on my way out of the military, but I recognized that my spouse at the time and a lot of the other Marine Corps spouses on base were really keen on yard sailing together. And they wouldn't really go out of the base. It was a very local thing. So I was like, oh, that would be an interesting like website to create. And I didn't know how to code. I didn't even know what a designer was. And so I went and bought a script. Pinterest had just dropped not long ago and it was in its like very rudimentary form, but they had that beautiful kind of masonry grid scrolling feature that just blew everybody away. And I bought this script that replicated that feature. And it was basically a Pinterest clone. And I was like, well, that won't do. But the entire feature of it was cool. I was like, I'll let people post their items. And then I'll just go in and I'll try to make it look different so I don't get sued by Pinterest was kind of my concern. And so my nights and weekends were spent going in between training and running and all the, the headache of the Marine Corps, and then trying to figure out how to change the interface just enough so this thing looked <laughs> different. And then I just started telling people about it around base, and it just caught like wildfire. And then I got this wise idea. I was like, okay, this is clearly taking off. I had like higher ups asking me about it. And I said, I'm going to take it all down. I'm going to completely redesign it and come out like a real brand. And that decision ended up killing the whole hype that it had because I never got to the redesign fast enough. I didn't know how to code as much as I was trying to cram learning PHP. And then the whole thing just fell apart and it turned into this like Facebook page that actually still worked for people. But it was it was such a heartbreaking and very big lesson learned for me that sometimes you just have to make fast, scrappy decisions and it's not going to look how you ideally want it to look. But if you don't have the runway to survive to get to that point, it's never gonna look the way you want it to look. I love the learn by doing, just throw yourself at it. Like I'm just gonna download a script and ship this thing. I definitely think that that's kind of been like a little bit of a theme in your journey for sure, is just trying things and putting yourself out there. So maybe even like continue along with the story a little bit. And can you take us to that moment? I think it's a roughly around like nine, 10 years ago and you decide that you're going to leave your job and this idea of comfort and start something. What was that like? What that taught me was that I really liked trying to solve problems with technology. And I got a taste of what it looked like when you 
built something and people started using it and I got immediately addicted to that. And I was like, how do I do that? And so I, I would spend like a handful of years working agency, but always trying to build my own thing. It was like lead generation for local pool businesses, you know, little WordPress websites. It was esports betting platform. But then eventually, while I'm working at an agency, I met one of my co-founders, and he's an incredible technical guy. And in the esports kind of genre, Justin TV had become a really big place where people who were playing video games and esports communities were kind of flocking to. It was the place to watch this stuff because no one else was giving it the time of day. And what we realized is Justin TV was turning into Twitch. There were a lot of streamers who were willing to pay for custom development so they could have cool graphics on their screen. And we're like, hey, let's create this like self-serve way to do that so people could accept donations and do this whole thing. And we end up building a platform. And there's a couple other people who recognize this opportunity too. So we're racing to do this thing. And we get to market. And it just, it blows up on us. It absolutely blows up. And the thing that was really terrifying to me was I've got four kids, a wife, and I have some client work I'm supposed to be working on that I could not bring myself to do because I'm just looking at this app and I've never seen this kind of growth. I recognize there's an opportunity here and we're not charging any money for it. And so we see 100,000 daily active users within three months. <laughs> and we have no money. I was afraid to turn on the money faucet. I didn't want to charge for donations. I didn't want to charge anything. But I'm going absolutely broke. And TwitchCon, the very first TwitchCon ever, is happening that fall. And it's $10,000 to go and get a booth at TwitchCon as a vendor. We do not have $10,000. We scraped together just enough money to get like a small little billboard that stood up on its own, a little pop-up that I designed for, enough money to print out the design. We got these really crappy t-shirts made that said our company name on it, Stream Pro. And we got a, a really rough hotel in the Tenderloin and we ate Walgreens sub sandwiches when we stayed out there. We didn't realize how hilly the place was in San Francisco. And so we didn't Uber anywhere and we just walked places and we'd be drenched in sweat because we're just climbing these incline hills when we were walking around. And fortunately, my biz dev founder, he had made some relationships. One of the companies we made a relationship with just said, hey, come and like, occupy this four foot space right next to us. And we're like, we'll do it. And when I land in San Francisco, my wife calls me and says, our vehicle engine just broke down. It's going to be a $3,000 repair. And I literally landed, we got to the hotel and I broke down crying because I, at that moment I had realized I've probably been making a mistake. Like I haven't been focusing on the financial things that were important to me. I'm in a situation now where I've left my family to pursue this wild dream. And so my buddies said, hey, like we're already here. Let's go ahead and do this three-day event. Let's try to make the most of it. And then we'll talk about what this looks like moving forward. Three weeks later, we got acquired. And it was because of that event in TwitchCon. And it was the wildest adventure for me. I'll be honest with you, we sold way too early. We should have been a situation that said no, because I think that would have been the right answer at the time. We recently announced one of the biggest swings that I've seen a designer take in a while with the acquisition of uxtools.co. Can you give us a little bit of that 
backstory and why you made that decision and kind of what your vision is with it moving forward? I'm really excited about UX tools and I'm also staying up at night terrified about it. This is the first time I've ever invested like the amount of money I've invested into this and the time. If this doesn't work, I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to figure something out. It's going to be a scary time if this doesn't work. But this is really something I believe in because before I went into the military, I tried to go to school. And it wasn't for me. I just I can't I can't consume a large uh curriculum. I like to be trying to build something and learning at the same time. And and so many of the prerequisites and things just weren't doing it for me. I tried again after the military. I was like, well, I'll do, I'll work on some of this website development and I'll go to school at the same time. It just was not doing it. I wanted to be learning Python right then and there. I didn't want to have to worry about everything that led up to my first computer science class. I didn't want to do that. And I owe such a large part of my career to the ability for the internet to provide me online learning opportunities to go and find independent courses. If that did not exist, my life would look so much more different right now. I didn't, I did not come up from this like upbringing where, you know, I had a single mom who was working all the time. I did not have this wonderful network. I had my first child when I was 19 years old. I was a military vet, not an officer. I was, you know, a low ranking grunt. I had all these things that statistically this probably doesn't look this way if online education did not exist for me. And I look at that and I realize that there are two things I think missing from people who want to work in these more lucrative roles. One, oh man, I wish we had more apprenticeships. Like I really do. I think this is such a field that would benefit so strongly from having someone smacking your hand with a ruler while you're trying to work on a real problem at a company and teaching you as you're doing it. That would be like the most ideal situation. And, and it takes a lot, not just a company. It takes really uh, an entire society's structural system to be different for that to be how we operate. So UX tools to me or online education in general is kind of the next best iteration because we had boot camps come out and we've had a lot of people go to boot camps and I do think boot camps were well-meaning. I think the problem that started to happen with boot camps, there's a couple of things, but uh, one of them is, you know, the curriculum gets dated very quickly. This production line has changed. It's continuing to change, right? But then on top of that, the barrier to entry to people who can create content or create ideas now with social media, with uh, how common it is to just own a really advanced piece of technology in your pocket, all of that has come together to make it easy for anybody to share ideas or to transfer knowledge online. And with that lower barrier to entry has become a lot of different, you know, variants in quality. So the question is, what do we do about that? And for me, the way I've always learned, and not everyone learns like me, and I'm going to learn a lot about this, but the way I've always learned is to try a thing, build that military yard sale app, try and get people to pay me for leads. And then when I get stuck, go and try to learn and find the information wherever it exists about what I'm stuck on, learn the thing in some capacity, and I'm not going to be a pro at it, but it'll at least give me like a hammer to hit the brick wall with, get unstuck and then continue forward. And so that try, get stuck, learn, get unstuck loop has been such a big part of how I've, you know, I guess become a designer really. And that's what I want to do for people. I love hearing you talk about that loop because something that's clear listening to you talk is you have this bias toward action 
when a lot of people come to me and they're like, man, how do I get out of tutorial land? I keep learning and like duping myself by believing I'm making all this progress, but I'm really just consuming without actually creating and working towards something. So having that like end goal and thing that you want to bring into the world as a reason to learn that you can almost default to, to ship and to build and to tinker and to explore and then, and learn when you're stuck and not just like wake up and say, you know, I'm going to consume another tutorial today, man. I think that's such an excellent way. And just like a higher level model to approach this idea of investing in yourself and, and learning on the go. The feedback loop with people who use or consume the stuff you create is almost like oxygen. That's how I view it. The longer you keep all of your ideas inside of that Figma file or just kind of inside of your head, the, the quicker you're going to essentially lose the ability to make that a reality. But the minute I had that feedback loop, the motivation, the hunger, the ability and willingness to, to push through the oncoming brick walls. And if you're ever going to create something and you have the ability to try and distribute that idea, and it's that versus, well, let me just like refine this a few more iterations, go with the former because that oxygen is going to carry you so much further than, you know, feeling good about the third iteration of the thing. You said something interesting about how easy it is for boot camp curriculums to become out of date. And I think that's like increasing rapidly as even from my yeah. own perspective, like having invested so much into this curriculum and then all of a sudden Figma releases variables and it just totally blows everything to smithereens and you have to start over. One of the things that you talked about in your launch announcement for the UX tools acquisition was basically making a bet that the way we design software is fundamentally going to change. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that, what you see coming? And then how do you then approach building an education business on top of that reality? Yeah, I think hard skills have kind of gotten a little bit of a bad reputation over the last five years. A lot of design leaders or certain design disciplines kind of say, hey, design is more than the tooling. And so for that reason, I think some people might be tricked into discounting the tools that exist. But the truth is those tools, I really think more than ever, we need to be paying attention to today. For example, I think we're going to see a lot more hybrid responsibilities, not because economically we're being, it's being demanded of us, although I do think that's part of it, but also because it's just going to become more feasible. In the past, it's not necessarily the most feasible thing for a product designer to be doing product management work all the time. That's an exhausting ask. You're probably not being compensated for it. And so those things didn't always make sense. I think that that's going to continue to become less and less the case. It's not a leap for you to go, hey, I'm going to spend my Thursday on competitive analysis today. Those are the kinds of things that I think we're going to see more empowerment. So many designers are like, should I learn to code? Listen, th that path has been there for a long time. And, and I do think there are things designers should know about the medium we're creating in, the box model, image optimization, how load times are impacted based on API calls. Like those things, like know those things. If you're inclined to build, like if you want to live in code and debug and do things like that, go do that. But if you don't really want to debug, like you like building, but you don't want to debug, because I'm telling you right now, debugging is what killed coding for me. If you, don't, if you would rather just build and solve problems, you're probably very well suited in that product management bucket, being able yeah. to really evaluate an industry. And, and so I think those paths are really going to exist. Now, 
Do we ditch altogether the PM engineer design model? I don't know, but I can tell you what typically seems to happen is the people we look up to in Silicon Valley make a decision. A couple years later, the industry as a whole evaluates that decision, and then you see the domino effect kind of affect the rest of the regions in the world, right? And so people are going to look at Airbnb in two or three years, and they're going to say, was that a good decision? And the day someone in media proclaims yes, then you're going to see everybody start to do it, right? And so we're going to see a lot of things like that, but I think it just makes sense. And you're not just going to see designers go into these other fields. You're going to see product managers, and they're asking me already, like, I want to do more design work. I don't want to consider myself a designer, but, like, my company's asking me to do the design work. How do I learn the skills of a designer? And when you think about that, you think less about, I need to take a product design course. And you think more about, I need to learn how to do Figma to create a prototype. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And so like yeah. that in my mind is the kind of hard skills that I think will deserve and get the emphasis moving forward because you're going to just see a lot of design adjacent people wanting to learn design skills. Man, there's so much to unpack there. Like I love those <laughs> points. We've all seen so many people write something along the lines of like, well, it's not the tools that matter. It's the designer, you know? And it's like, yes, totally true. However, <laughs> man, our tools have changed a lot. And the biggest way that they've changed is they're inherently collaborative. You yeah. can't say, oh, I could do just as good of a job as a, as a UX designer on a napkin nowadays because nobody else can play on that napkin with you. And mm -hmm. the more collaborative that our tools become, I think the harder it is to ignore them. So I've been thinking a lot about, well, how do designers respond to this flattening of the stack? Trying to think of design as less of like a predefined role and more of a skill set that you bring to the table and what is like one other skill set that you can combine it with like based off of your skills and interests what is your intersection point of things that you bring to the table and yeah maybe it's product management maybe it's you can write a little bit of front end but maybe it's like actually i really like UX writing and copywriting. And that's something that I don't have to be reliant on another person for. Or maybe I feel pretty comfortable making simple marketing videos and being a part of those go-to-market conversations. Like that mm -hmm. design plus X mental exercise, I think is a really interesting way to think about how to position yourself as a candidate today. When I came up into this field, I didn't say to myself, I want to be a designer. And so today that's, that's like a thing. That's a, an aspiration. People say, I want to be a designer and they have this predefined definition and like kind of view of what that looks like. I will do these responsibilities. I will be in charge of this. For me, it was that coding was really hard. And I had ideas that I wanted to get to market. So design was kind of the most feasible way to bring an idea to life just enough in order for me to determine if I should invest into it. When you really do think about it that way, that like my role as a designer is not to make this pixel perfect Figma prototype that does all this bells and whistles and like it, it basically functions as a standalone app in Figma. Really my job is just to communicate the key parts for whatever the challenges that we're dealing with, whether that's I need to inform instruction to engineers or I need to help the growth team convey this message to potential customers. When you really start to understand like as a designer, my job is just to better communicate the ideas that are already already in the room, then you really start to have the conversation with yourself of, is this thing I'm spending half my day on a value added activity? 
Or is this kind of playground work that maybe I should make some time for on my weekend? If you just kind of think about like, what does my team need right now? And what's kind of the threshold of, you know, the critical mass of, all right, they've got it. And now everything I'm continuing to work on is more for me. And I should like, I should roll back on that just a little bit. Those have been the things I've been trying to communicate. And I'm still learning the best way to communicate that to people because there certainly is a gap between someone like me who became a designer because I was a bad coder and someone who was grew up in an industry that had already existed and said, hey, like that's the role that I someday see myself in. I'm another fellow designer who only became a designer because I was a bad coder. So that totally resonates <laughs> with me. You know, man, there are so many different ways to invest in your skill set as a designer. And I think that's historically been the case. And I think you can make the argument based off of even some of the things that we were just talking about that it's only going to be more of the case where there are just a lot of different ways that you can make an impact and move the needle. So I want to talk in a couple hypotheticals and, and maybe just even brainstorm mm -hmm. potential learning pathways for people. And yeah. the first person is, let's say that they're a senior designer. They've been doing this for a few years, but they want to skate to where the puck is going. What are some of the tactical skill sets that you think people can invest in now to future proof themselves based off of where design is headed in the coming years? I say two things, which is one on the, on the mindset side, you got to get rid of the cynicism. Like when you see these new tools coming out and listen, we've been through the crypto hype. We've been through hype cycles now, many of us. And so it's easy to look at another hype cycle and, and get cynical about it. I understand that, but we can't do that if we want to continue to, like you put it, skate to where the puck's going. You, you, cynicism is going to kill your ability to do that effectively. So you got to ditch the cynicism as best you can. And the best way to do that is to just go out there and spend time playing with new tools. For example, you could go and just say, hey, I'm going to go and invest into a coding for designers course. Not a bad thing. And some people might learn really well that way. But then there's another entry point to learning to be a coder as a designer, right? And that's maybe going and playing with some of the tools that have come out, like Framer is one that I really love. And, and not that that's gonna allow you and teach you to create these like robust product experiences, but it is gonna help you understand how your Figma design is gonna translate to the screen medium. And that acts as a gateway to, okay, I see what the limitations in Framer are. How can I actually extend this further? Oh, I've gotta learn a little bit more about JavaScript. So like, I'm gonna go and look and again, go getting into that try, get stuck, learn, get unstuck loop. That's one way that I would say to somebody who's already been in this field, who has probably gotten comfortable in their seat and said, this is what the job's going to look like for the next 15 years. And now suddenly they're like, wait a second, things are changing. What am I supposed to do? Well, my answer to them is go and play with the tools. Go and play with the tools meaningfully. Go and create something that doesn't necessarily have to make money. Hey, if you're inclined and you wanna build something that actually goes to market and makes money, that's fine. Just know that the kind of lessons you're gonna learn are gonna have a lot less to do with the hard skill learning and a lot more to do with how do I make money in the marketplace. And there's, that's a whole other set of skill sets. Instead, spend a Saturday, spend a couple of Saturdays and just learn a new tool and then make the decision. Ah, I don't like this tool or I don't like this skill. This isn't for me, but don't make that decision beforehand. Make that decision after you've actually meaningfully built something with it or tried to use whatever that tool is to do something. I love that advice. Just tinkering, the importance of tinkering. 
even a couple more Tinkering, tools that yeah. I'll list like Rive is another one that to me just blows yeah. my mind what people are doing where I'm like, man, if I was wanting to make myself unique as a candidate, being able to contribute Rive files and animations to actual products that are shipping feels like, whoa, that's, that's a superpower. Another one that I've been playing with is visualelectric.com. I never really got into Midjourney. I'm not like a huge Discord person. That was intimidating to me. Holy smokes, what Visual Electric is doing right now for image generation is incredible. And all of a sudden it's like come to life for me where I'm like making all of my own illustrations and even using it to explore different textures that I can put onto websites that I'm designing. I love that advice, tinker, play, explore. I wanna have another hypothetical and maybe this one's almost a little okay. bit more challenging, which is let's say someone's listening to this where they, potentially have even recently transitioned into design. Maybe they have some kind of an internship, a little bit of experience under their belt, or maybe they just got laid off after their first role. Unfortunately, a lot of people are in that situation. How do you think about where designers should invest from there? And specifically like the sequencing of learning, because there's so many different things to learn. You can so easily be overwhelmed by the landscape. What would you do if you were in that situation? It's hard. And I feel for people who are on the kind of first half of their career right now, because it's tough. But what I would tell people is that now more than ever, it is important for you to learn how to sell yourself. And there's a number of ways you can do that. That's in person. That's portfolio work. That's making decisions based on how those decisions are going to impact your ability to sell yourself. Here's what I mean. It's a bad word to say, do free work. Many of us who have been in this field for a long time have a privilege because we can tell people don't do free work because I won't do free work and I can afford not to do free work. But there are other people out there who need a portfolio and you're not going to get clients without real work in your portfolio. So you can fight the good fight with those of us saying don't do free work and you can support our cause and we'll make you a martyr, but that's not gonna help solve your problem in selling yourself. And so I'm not necessarily saying go and strive to do free work. What I'm saying is you need to make decisions that are right for you. And for some people doing less than optimal projects, like I'm probably too good for that project because it doesn't uh, inspire me or I, it doesn't pay me the amount that I think I'm worth, whatever the criteria is. Right now, if you are early in your career and your portfolio does not help sell yourself, if you don't know how to sell yourself, if you don't know where to get leads, those are the types of activities that I would be focusing on. That's the work that I personally wouldn't want to do, but it's probably the most valuable work. If you'd rather just sit and your answer to your problem is, I'm just going to improve my visual design skill and someone will eventually recognize my visual design skills because I've invested uh, one month on it right now and that's going to solve my problem, this is what I'm talking about. There's value add activities and then there's performance theater. And that's probably more performance theater. But if you don't even have that problem where you have to prove your visual skill to somebody in an actual job setting, then that's not your problem right now. Your problem is I need to get people to give me a chance and you have to sell yourself and that's uncomfortable. That's not the skill set that a lot of people promised you that you would have to learn, but it is the skill set you're going to have to figure out because it doesn't just end there. Learning how to sell yourself and learning how to sell your ideas. That's, that's the job of design. Like that really is just our job is building these ideas out and finding different ways to communicate them. I think a lot of people listening to this are 
inspired by how you're selling yourself and taking these big swings with UX tools and shipping and experimenting. And I'd love to learn a little bit more from you. How did you think about effectively allocating your time outside of work to these different like passion projects or uh, skill sets that you were hoping to learn? Like what was exciting to you and, and how did you make that decision? And maybe you could even talk a little bit more broadly too about advice for designers who like have this itch to make something, to ship something, yeah. but they don't yet have clarity for what that should be. Today, right now, as you're talking to me today, I, I feel like I'm in a really fortunate position. I've more or less learned how to hustle, so to speak, meaning I don't sacrifice, you know, my, my personal health. I don't sacrifice my relationships with my family and I still find ways to work hard. I've learned how to make those trade-offs. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good and I'm happy with it. That wasn't always the case. I literally would spend almost four years, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, almost four years working 60 to 80 hour weeks. Wouldn't take any kind of holiday breaks, wasn't spending a lot of time with the family, and that would eventually turn into this reckoning, my mental health reckoning. I, I had a very, very dark period in my life after I sold the company where it kind of all just came crashing down on me. And suddenly this hustle culture that I had subscribed to, I really started to resent. And I said, why did I do that? I don't know if that was worth it. Sure, it got me to Silicon Valley. Sure, I was able to sell a company, but like I did not feel like a winner. And that was something I really had to come to terms with. And so what I would say to people today is make time for play, make time for your mental health, but don't, you know, the pendulum has swung a bit. And even for me, I'm, I'm the extreme case where like I subscribed hardcore to, to hustle culture and like the consequences kicked my butt. So I don't, I don't preach hustle culture, go out there and hustle. You don't need your weekends. What I will say is hard work is still necessary. Don't flinch against hard work. The way that I pursue hard work though is I might go into like monk mode for a week or for a weekend or maybe at a max two weeks. There's an initiative that really needs my attention either at the job or a project I'm working on. But then the following weekend or the next week, like I'm gonna get that time back. I'm blocking that off and I'm telling people, hey, like minimum effort this week, I'm chilling. I'm gonna go hang out with the family. I'm gonna focus on me. There's something I've always wanted to work on or, or, or make or it, unrelated to the job. I'm gonna go do that. And I make that important. We are essentially our priorities. You know, what, Whatever we make important, that's what we become. To answer your question, there, at the beginning of my career was not intentional. All I knew was money, 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 and that's what I had to pursue. Today, I'm just more intentional about it. And what I would say to somebody who's kind of thinking about wanting to do a side project, don't feel like you need that thing to succeed right now today. And if you have a day job, if you have something that's paying the bills, have fun with that. Yes, that means your Monday through Friday is probably taken up a bit, but like have fun with the Saturday. Make that thing. There are so many great tools out there. If you see a tool, you're like, hey, maybe that'll help me get to whatever the outcome of my project is, go play with that. And even if you end up playing with that all Saturday and you're like, I got nothing done today, I didn't actually make progress on my project, appreciate the play that you got from that. And eventually you can get to the place where it's like, okay, I need to, if I want this project to actually turn money, then yes, you can start thinking about what are the right decisions to make, but enjoy the process of bringing something to life without somebody breathing down your neck. I think there are also people listening to this who like do have ideas. Maybe they have a little bit of momentum. They're making something. 
but perhaps they're a little bit intimidated by this mm. lack of having an audience and maybe even the idea of putting themselves out there is a little bit intimidating. And I think it's yeah, interesting it to call out like 10 plus years into your career, you've made the jump to be a full-time creator working for yourself. So can you talk a little bit about why you made that decision and then any lessons or strategies that you've learned along the way that you think other designers listening could use to get momentum in their own journey. There was a period in software where if you built a thing and you just kind of got a little squeaky wheel noise out there, you'd attract customers. Well, now we're like software's eating the world. It's saturated. If you build it, they will not come. And that goes not just for software, but anything you create. It used to be search engine optimization was kind of the distribution model. And Google really cracked down on that because everyone found ways to exploit it. For me, my first few companies, Reddit was such a great distribution model. Yeah. People exploited that and then Reddit's cracked down on that. And social media was like paid ads for a while, but it wasn't, people weren't like really taking this idea of building in public seriously until a little later. And then people realized, oh, if I like just talk about what I'm building and show the nuts and bolts of it, that's interesting enough that it tracks people who want to continue following what I'm doing and maybe even turn into customers. And what I would say to people today is I, I get the cynicism around creator culture, but it's no longer just like lifestyle influencers and memes. Distribution exists at scale. And I view what social media has become today, warts and all, is kind of an indie movement. It really is. It's a response to corporations that are willing to just fire their employees when economic pullback happens. It's a response to all of the middlemen who like to take their cut from book publishers and record labels. It's a response to essentially everybody needing to make one bet in a company as a laborer and then have that bet completely turned on its head. I think that social media creators today, people who use, it's, it's weird to just like box it into one definition as social media creator. All it is is the new small business. It's a new distribution that didn't used to exist. And so you might have a bad idea that you spend a lot of time on and you've got 5,000 people on TikTok or Instagram who are willing to give it a try and that idea sucks. Yeah, you might lose a little bit of goodwill and you're going to have to lick your wounds and think of something else, but that distribution channel didn't go away. You still have it. And that's what's super cool is that when you have a distribution channel, it can do so many things for you. It can allow you to build a business on top of it. It can have you test ideas before you need to sink a ton of money into it because people are going to tell you if they think that idea is worthwhile. To, if you're somebody who wants to knowledge transfer, if you see a problem in the market or you see a problem with how design is happening from your bedroom, these four walls of mine, I can try to make that impact. And what I would tell people is if you're starting out, if that's interesting to you, I wanna let you know, you know I've got a, almost a million followers across different social channels now, and all of my content, anytime I ever tried to package an idea, right? I, we say content, but just ideas. Like I've tried to package an idea. Sometimes my ideas just don't hit. The execution is bad. Maybe the idea uh, is not a very good idea. It happens. Like there's building in public and then there's like thinking in public, which is a terrifying prospect because you are going to get criticized. But sometimes people aren't going to criticize you because only 14 people saw it. <laughs> and that <laughs> happens a lot, even to me still today. And the truth is, is if you take a short-term approach to anything, I'm going to share my ideas on, you know, TikTok or LinkedIn. And you're like, oh my gosh, after 30 days, this has been a dud. I'm going to stop doing this. 
Well, that's going to be a hard way to get better. You can't expect to, to get any form of mastery. And, and one of the things I tell people is, you know, your first design or your first, you know, video or your first written Substack newsletter is not going to be that great. It's probably going to suck, but your hundredth, your hundredth is going to be pretty good, but you're not going to get there unless you do the reps to get there. And you have to do those repetitions. And that just goes with anything. It's like that 10,000 hour rule. So if you're starting out today, pick one platform. Don't try to be everywhere all at once. Don't do that. Pick one thing that resonates. Do you like to do video? Do you like to create images? Do you like to write? Or are those things that maybe like, I don't know if I like to, but I want to try? Pick one and spend 90 days doing it. Just spend 90 days and practice. Think in public. Get through the ones that are going to be tough because it's going to be tough. Try, get stuck, learn, get unstuck. I love the idea of thinking in public and also even highlighting the fact that like, man, there's just not as much risk in the beginning of your process as you think there is. Like when I made so the decision much. to think yeah. in public, I was like, what if my ideas suck? And I've looked back on some of them and it turns out, yeah, some of them sucked. They totally did, but nobody saw them in the grand scheme of things. Nobody saw them and they were completely meaningless. All they were, were just me getting reps and being more comfortable writing and putting myself out there. And even just, being a magnet for people who have thoughts on similar issues and want to even critique things and, and being able to learn from that and iterate and take that into the next time. So I think that's just spot on. Like if you're on the fence and you're, you know, struggling to just hit enter, send tweet, post on LinkedIn, whatever it is, make a video. Yeah. Man, in the early days, nobody cares about you. And that's actually a blessing. Every single piece of content I've ever made it, it makes you kind of a better designer because you, you treat it like an MVP. Treat it like something like there's an idea, there's an execution, I'm gonna put it out and I'm gonna learn from that. I used to think my ideas about moving quickly in dysfunctional situations applied to everybody. But it's not true. There are situations where that's just not the case. And it really helped me see that, okay, there are situations where that's true and it's true at scale. But that scale is not universal. And that really helped me redefine how I talk about it when I use absolutes and when I don't. And that has been a really helpful thing just in my life in general, because, you know, at the age of 37 now, I feel like I've experienced a lot of stuff. I start to think, oh, the chances of me being wrong this time are lower. Well, it's been a nice eye opener to see that that's still, I'm still sprightly. I get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think I just have a bunch of respect too for the amount of times that you've like went into your little hole of creativity and made something and brought it out into the world, whether it's you know your book or the UX challenges or AI teardowns. And I know that you're someone that cares a lot about personal growth and iteration. So my question is, when you look at your process for building something and bringing it to market, how has that evolved over your career as you've learned all these lessons and put in some of these reps? I am such a big proponent of remixing existing ideas. I'm actually terrified of being first to market. I'm actually terrified of being the, per the author of a new and novel idea. I think on one hand, there are very few instances where real innovation happens. I think if you think you're being innovative, you just, ha you just have a smaller surface area of what you've actually explored. But there are still cases where real innovation does happen. I'm not saying there's not. But the biggest thing is 
so many people, designers especially, we want to create the new and novel thing. And I used to want to do that all the time because I thought the only way to differentiate in the market was to be new and novel. And that's not true. Distribution beats new and novel sometimes. There's a lot of other things that can really help you in the marketplace. Sometimes even saturation, you could do the exact same thing and just have a different part of the market cornered for a couple of other factors, right? And so the way that things have changed for me is I focus less on how am I new and novel and where some people say, oh, there's already a lot of people doing that thing and they kind of shy away from entering that market. I view that as a really good signal. I'm like, hmm. awesome. There's strength there. Now let's go ahead and dissect it. There's so much to be learned. It's like some people view, oh, you know, the linear trend is this big, bad thing, gradients and dark backgrounds and all these, you know, and there's so many people who push back on it. And I get it. You know, we have all of us as designers have the curse of knowledge because we're seeing this every day, but the majority of the world's not. And, and so the thing is, when we look at what's happening out there, whether it's a visual design trend or a, a competitor in the market, being cynical will prevent us from being able to synthesize the real free learning that's happening right in front of us. We'll say, ah, I'm not even going to explore that. I want to be new and novel. I'm going to go over here and create the new thing. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you have a good time with that. Have Look fun. at all this free data in front of me right now. There's so much free stuff. Like I can learn this new visual style like that. I can learn how, what's working in the marketplace. Everyone's talking and buzzing about this new tool or interaction. I can go learn about that right there. I, I don't need some super secret sauce or source to, to get this data. It's right there in front of me. So let me dissect the heck out of that. And that's what I do now. I am such a proponent of looking at what exists and, and making that a core part of my curiosity. It's beautiful. And, and I think as designers, man, you're right. Like we are the most susceptible people to just feel this pressure to be novel and to do something that no one's ever done before and, and to not capitalize on right. familiarity and, and existing excitement. So I think that makes a ton of sense still though. It's a little bit scary, right? Anytime you're going to bring something to market, there is the possibility that you're going to fall on your face. <laughs> and yeah. you know, you, you've been someone who is open about the fact that like, yeah, you've had failures too throughout your career. Like Many. everything has went <laughs> to plan. Like maybe you could use this opportunity just to talk about the role that failure has played in your career and how it has shaped you. I think one of the biggest things is that I've just learned how to fail. Failure is a deeply personal thing, especially when you make a lot of sacrifices and it turns out like you're like, I made all these sacrifices and it turned into nothing, right? You start to question like, can I trust myself? Am I any good at anything? This is what I thought I was going to be good at. For me anyway, failure turns into this really dark place. It has in the past. And what I started to realize through lots of therapy and through lots of failure is that you can fail gracefully. It's not bad to fail. What's bad about failure is how you choose to respond to it. You know, and, and in Silicon Valley and, and in a lot of the culture, we, we say like fail fast and learn lessons from it. Yeah, absolutely. But like that doesn't capture the emotional toll and how to deal with the toll of failure. Nobody that I know anyway fails at something and then can immediately bounce into another thing. I've tried to do that as a coping mechanism and it does help, but at some point it's going to catch up to you and you're going to have like a weekend or a day where you're going to be just bummed out that the thing you tried to create 
didn't work. And that's okay. And for me, I used to think that that was bad. Like, don't dwell. Don't give yourself time to think about what didn't work. Just like immediately, like you get fired from a job or you fail at a project immediately, like just replace it with the next thing and keep the engines warm, you know? But for me, I would say, give yourself time to grieve that process, like to grieve the effort you put into that and the fact that you were wrong and the fact that that hurts. Give yourself time, but time box it. Give yourself a weekend. Escapism can be a really dangerous thing, but it can also be a helpful thing. So after you're done grieving, like give yourself a moment to go play again and escape in the thing that makes you happy and time box that. Maybe it's a video game, or maybe it's reading a book. Whatever the case is, like give yourself a little bit of room to kind of heal. You need to, just like athletes. And once you do that, then you can start to ask yourself, okay, this is a season of growth. This next season ahead of me, I'm going to put to use all this growth, and I'm going to start planting seeds again. Before I let you go, I know we've covered a lot of ground, but I do have a couple more questions. When I you know, look at all the different things that you've done over the last, whatever, 14 years, like it's pretty clear you are the embodiment of the Swiss army knife designer, right? Like, yeah, you can design, but you can also do a little bit of coding and you have like, a, like you know, SEO knowledge and all this stuff. My question is, what is a skill that you could have benefited from learning earlier in your career? Mm-hmm. <laughs> competitive analysis. I think proper competitive analysis, um, just better, having a better ability to look at a market to know what to look for and to bring that back in some sort of meaningful document. Like at at the end of the day, what I used to do is just kind of look at a product and get a general gist of things. I didn't know what existed to allow me to evaluate how customers were feeling about that product or how much money they had and what that meant, what their runway was based on their timeline. So having the ability to learn how to do that would have been tremendous. That would have been very helpful, I think, in making faster decisions and to making more accurate decisions. What's something that you personally believe about design that you think a lot of other designers would disagree about? The biggest thing is that quality is not always and is often not the differentiator we think it is. I do think that the level of quality in design today, thanks to the industrialization that has happened in this field, It is easier now for someone who's not a designer to spin up tailwinds and to meet a bare minimum floor of quality thanks to the types of patterns we're seeing distributed. And for that reason, sometimes that's good enough. A lot of times that's good enough. And I believe a lot of us as designers like to really try to to get the most out of quality. And um, I think that that's a noble effort but I also think that's play. And that's something that I would say, there are trade-offs in there. And you've got to identify what are the best ones for your use case. Before I let you go, any questions that I should be asking or anything else that you want to share with listeners? You know, I'm just curious to hear where you think design's going. We touched on it a little bit with the flattening of the stack. I think design is simply not going to be as dependent on other people. Whether it's with AI making it so much easier to write code, like being able to spin up actual JavaScript. Like before it was just like, yeah, I'd tinker with CSS. I can make something look pretty. But now I can make something do a thing, a function on the internet. And it's not that hard. And it's getting 
easier really quickly. And I'm not that good at branding and I'm, I can't illustrate anything for my life, but I can go to Visual Electric and make really, really interesting brand assets. And copywriting is getting easier with, with ChatGPT. And all of a sudden it's like, man, I'm really grateful to be a designer because I think that we have the underlying skill sets and way of looking at the world that equip us to make like real impact and to ship really yeah. meaningful products and experiences. And when everything is democratized, I'm grateful to be a designer. I'm a raging optimist about the future and I, I can't wait. And so like, yeah, I think your advice is spot on where it's like the only thing that I'm really trying to do is tinker because nobody has any idea what's actually going to happen and where this is mm -hmm. going to go and what our day-to-day -day roles are going to look like and how that's going to change two, three years from now. I mean, can you imagine how long three years is? ChatGPT is, you know, we, we, it really only got adoption like 13 months ago. What does three years look like when things are only accelerating? We have no idea. I'm optimistic. And right now I'm just trying to be someone who tinkers at that fringe line. And I'm just gonna trust the process from there. It's how you build and continue to evolve your taste. And I, I think design taste is such a big part of the equation. Even yeah. if you're the person in the room who says, this could be better, but it doesn't need to be to be successful in the market. I want that coming from the designer. I don't want that coming from anybody else. You know what I mean? And that's when I'm okay with quality being good enough is when the designer said this is good enough because designers, we typically have much better taste. And the only way you're going to keep growing that is if you keep trying new things, you keep yeah. seeing what's possible and you keep seeing how things are working. I love that. And I'm even going to double click on that again is finding ways to invest in taste, which is such an ambiguous thing. Like, what does that actually mean? You know? And I think it really just comes down to exposure. Just see as many ideas and visual styles and approaches as you possibly can. Like something that I do, which I actually really do think has benefited me immensely as a designer is I spend five minutes a day on ProductHunt.com. I just go there and I just click around on a few things. What are the top products? What is getting people excited? And I discover so much that way. And then what I do is I save everything that is interesting to me. Every little visual detail, every piece of copywriting that I think is unique, I dump it into Notion, I organize the heck out of it because I view that as a really powerful asset in a world where we are relying more on AI to create things. Because if I can build up this database of assets that represent my taste, man, I think it's going to be pretty easy to extrapolate that in the future. And I think that could be a really powerful asset. So that's like a little thing that I'm doing to prepare for the future is kind of just stockpiling artifacts that I feel align with my taste. I had a big smile because I do the same thing and I felt validated <laughs> to hear that you do that because there, there's like a lot of obscure little things on there that you could really pull from. Hey, if you're a designer, create your own swipe files. Like even if it doesn't yeah. see the public, like in notion or whatever you do, like save links, save stuff. That's a great way to help your taste. And a little random plug before we go actually is the people behind the footer.design website just yeah, open sourced yeah. it so you can actually like dump that into, I guess it's like a framework CMS. I'm not really sure, but you should check that out because I think that's a fun way. I to wish I had done that yourself. before I created teardowns.ai. I wish, <laughs> oh. I wish that thing had existed. This is what I mean. The tooling is so cool out there. And if you, so if you cool. don't allow yourself to see what, I mean, you're going to miss it. Yeah, go play.
Well, Tommy, this has been amazing. I know for a fact we could talk for another two hours, but I think I'm going to draw the line here, man. Thanks for taking the time. This has been really cool to hear from your journey, and thanks for sharing all the different insights and the things that you picked up along the way. If you're listening to this, head to uxtools.co, subscribe to the newsletter. It's amazing. And yeah, thanks again for the time. Thanks, Red. This has been fun, man.